Okay, I wrote up here on the board uh, the different dispensations just to remind you what they are. Uh, let me make a few comments about it. First of all, to remind you, why are we actually even talking about uh, this, this particular view of a prophecy? I want to remind you that something I said in the first week, I believe I, I said this. If you listen to 10 Bible teachers or if you read 10 commentaries on the book of Daniel, chapters 7 through 12, you will get uh, uh, an extraordinarily, just incredibly broad and diverse uh, and inconsistent uh, views of interpreting that portion of Scripture. It is the most debated, uh, the most, when I say the most, you should never say the most. It is one of, of the most debated and controversial uh, portions of scripture certainly in prophetic scripture and so we live that's the world we live in so that's why we're talking about uh, the different views and, and trying to explain a little bit about why we believe what we believe and what we teach here and so that's the setting so that's kind of forced on us we didn't necessarily we don't necessarily want to take that approach but that is why why uh, we decided to go in this direction now I wrote this back on the board again tonight uh, to just for you to be able to, to, to see the scheme of dispensationalism. But let me say a couple of things. These words don't matter. What I really am trying to talk to you about is just the concept. The concept is that there's this period of time, and this is Adam and Eve in the garden, and that during this time, God deals with man in a very specific way. And when the fall happens... God forever stops dealing with mankind that way. Now, we do know that Adam and Eve were a unique situation. But when we come to the next period, which is going to be uh, leading up uh, to the time of the flood, um, according to dispensationalism, God deals with people in an entirely different way. He begins to deal with people according to human conscience. And whether you are saved or not depends on how well you do uh, in following your conscience and being true to your conscience and being true to what's right and wrong. And that's the basis of how God deals with people. That's how people are either accepted by God or not. And when, when this period comes to an abrupt end at the flood, and God never deals with people on that basis again, that is done. This era of human history has ended. And then we come into the period of government following the flood. And, um, and, it, it, and on and on we go. The time of promise from when, when Abraham is in the world. And, and, and in this particular time, the promise was that you're supposed to go and live in the land and dwell in the land. But where do we see uh, at the end of this era, where do we see Israel? We don't see them in Cana. We see them in Egypt. And so that, that, that comes to a, another period of history where God stops dealing with people on this basis and he, he enters into an entirely new arrangement and a new way of dealing with people, a new way that people are saved or lost. Then we come into the time of the law. This will be following Moses. And during this period of time, people are saved or not by keeping, keeping God's law. Are you a lawbreaker? Are you disobedient? Or are you a lawkeeper? And are you obedient? And on that basis, 
people are righteous or not. They are, they are uh, saved or not based on keeping the law. That period comes again to an abrupt end, and it does, it does that at the time when, um, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world. And this period actually ends with the cross, with the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the, the end of this era, and God is going to begin then to deal with people on a new basis. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but uh, I'll come back to this board. But the era of grace is the period that we're living in now. Now, how are people saved or lost in this era? By believing the gospel or not believing the gospel. That's a new dispensation. That wasn't true from here back, but it's true in this dispensation. At the end of this age, when Christ comes back, and this can be a very complicated scene here about the period between these two, these two eras or these two dispensations. But at the end of this time, we're going to again enter into a time of, of kingdom where people are going to be, uh, are going to be uh, judged by whether or not they obey in the kingdom of Christ because Christ is going to be on the earth. Uh, he's going to be ruling from, uh, from Israel, uh, from Jerusalem. And, and there's going to be a time when Christ's kingdom here on earth is going to be uh, in effect, and whether or not you're saved or lost is going to depend on whether you're obedient and true uh, to that kingdom. And so that's going to be a different era. So what I tried to show you the, the first time that we finished last week, just to tell you what the point was, was I was trying to show you that God's covenant that he enters with Adam here has effects that never end. And they go all the way through time to where we are today. And they don't cease at the end of this period. And then when we see the next, when we see, uh, like, for example, the covenant with Noah uh, and, and all the effects of it, those things don't end at the end of that era. Those of the, all the effects of that covenant come to us right up to this very day, and we live in the blessings of the covenant with Noah. We saw the same thing with, with Abraham and his promises, that those things are what, what we actually experience here in Christ's church, uh, we, we are the, the full expression of the promises that were made to Abraham. And we are Abraham's offspring if we are in Christ. And so that doesn't end at the end of this era. It doesn't come to an end, the promises to Abraham, at this point in time when the law starts. And then we saw, I hope, uh, last time, how that the law has continuing consequences right into our Christian life where uh, right today... In the New Covenant, God writes His law on our hearts. And so that doesn't end here. The, the true effects of this continue on through time because we know here this is where we're living today in this era. So uh, the, the first thing that we don't agree with about dispensationalism is that God didn't uh, have these errors that came to abrupt and start uh, ends with... Uh, where, where the, that period of time, whatever was re reality for man and God during that time, ceases and passes away. What we see instead is we see this continuity uh, of God dealing with man uh, through his covenants that just become greater and greater and come to full flower. All of those covenants, the covenant of David is, is, is one we talked about. All of those covenants come to full flower in the Christian church, and we're not separated from those things. And we're going to see that a little bit more uh, tonight as well. 
Then what I was uh, talking about last time when we ended that we didn't finish was I was challenging the idea that these people were saved one way, these people were saved another 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 way, and we're saved another way. And what I was trying to show you, as I was beginning last week, was I was trying to show you that people have always, from the beginning of time, from Adam on, have been saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing in the Messiah. There's only been one Savior forever. There's only been one way of salvation from the beginning of time, and that is uh, by faith uh, in Him. So let's go back now to, for, for just a moment to Genesis 3.15. Because I talked about this last week, and I was thinking about it later that for some of you may not have ever heard this, and so I want to point it out to you. You're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we did talk about it briefly last week. But Genesis 3.15 is called this. It has a theological title, and it is this. It is the Proto-Evangelium, which just means simply, what does Proto mean? So, it's first or before, and, and so this is the first, and then what does Evangel, what is the Evangel? It's the good news, it's the gospel. So, this is just a fancy word that theologians use to refer to Genesis 3.15, but what it means is this is the first preaching of the gospel. And so, if this is true, then what this means is this. Adam and Eve have been in the garden, and they sin, and they fall, and we know all about the fall. And what we see in Genesis 3 is the very first thing that God does following the fall is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Adam and Eve. That is the first thing that happens after the fall. It doesn't happen all the way out here in decades and centuries and a millennia later. It happens as the very first event following the fall. God is talking to Adam and Eve and the servant there in the garden, and his first communication with them after the fall is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see it in Genesis 3.15. Let let's read this verse again just to highlight it to you. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to who here? He's speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, note at the beginning of verse 15 that God says that he is going to do something. Now, when God does something in our world, in our reality, there's a term we usually use for it, and it is the term grace, that God is interjecting himself in our world, and it's a gracious thing when God does something. Now, I want you to hold Genesis 3.15 and turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because I suggest to you we have a parallel passage here. Because I have a question I want to ask you. And this is the question. God is doing something between the serpent 
and between uh, Adam and Eve. God is going to act and do something. He says, I will do something. And, here, and so what the question is, is what is he actually going to do there in Genesis 3.15? Look at Ephesians chapter 2 for me. And this is the question. The question uh, is, when God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, why does God have to put enmity between the serpent and between Adam and Eve? Any, any, any answers? God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you have enmity with the devil. Why does God have to do that? Enmity means hostility, to be an enemy instead of being a friend. So he says, I'm going to make you be an enemy of the devil. I'm going to make you do that. And wh 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 why does God have to do that? <laughs> Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And it's because Adam and Eve and the Satan are on the same team. Do we understand that after the fall, that they're on the same team? Look at uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let's pause for a minute. We are walking right along with Satan. We are following uh, this world and this evil fallen world and all of its ways. We are following the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. That's what we're doing. And it is described Satan as the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he says this, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, that is by birth, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now he says we were that way because now as Christians, these Ephesians that he's writing to, they're no longer following Satan and walking after him and obeying him and, and being like the world. They've changed. They've been converted. They've been, and of course the answer of how that happens is going to be in verses 4 and 5 where it says that God makes us alive together with Christ. He gives us new birth. He gives us new life. Now go back to Genesis 3.15. What God says he's going to do here is, is, I am going to interject myself. I am going to act. And the action that I'm going to take is, I am going to put enmity between you and the devil so that you're not on the same side. I'm going to interject myself to make that happen. That's what God is going to graciously do in the new birth as we find out as the scriptures unfold that that's what happens. And between your offspring and her offspring. And then we have these words about the key to how all this is going to happen. He shall bruise your head, that is the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the serpent is going to do things that are going to always be uh, hurtful to Christ and his people. He's going to bruise Christ's heel. But Christ is going to crush the sa Satan's head. He's going to destroy Satan. And that's what we see happen, of course, uh, at the cross uh, when our Lord Jesus Christ um, defeats 
all of his enemies there. I want to point out just two verses to you in the New Testament. Romans 16.20. Romans 16.20. says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so Paul makes this statement that the time is coming soon when Satan will be completely crushed under your feet, that is, under the feet of his church. And so right now we're crushing Satan's kingdom bit by bit as people are converted and people are saved and brought into Christ's church. But the time is coming when he's going to be utterly destroyed. Also, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, our Lord Jesus Christ became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so what he's saying there is that the Lord Jesus Christ becomes flesh and blood so that he might go to the cross, and by his death he is going to destroy the power of the devil, uh, the power that he has over men's lives and bringing them to death, not only physical death, but to spiritual ruin as well. And so what we see there at the very opening moments of human history, following the fall, is we see uh, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ being, uh, being proclaimed. We see that God is going to interject himself into lives of people to make them be enemies of Satan instead of friends of Satan. And that it's all going to be on the basis of this one, this he, this single person that is going to come and is going to crush Satan's head. And so that's the first preaching of the gospel. Does that make sense? That Christ is being preached all the way back there in the garden. Do we, do we see that? And we see evidence that I spoke about this a little bit last week. I'm not going to repeat it. That there's this mentality in the, those first chapters of Genesis. That one is going to be born. It's going to be a deliverer. And that continues on. Now last week I, I, began, to, uh, I began to talk to you about how people in Christ's day were looking for the prophet that Moses had promised and the Messiah that the Scriptures promised in the Old Testament, that this was on the minds of the people. And so when we think about this era here before the cross, if the cross is here, when we think about this time before, we, we, we should understand that those Old Testament people, which in, in, in the gospel days before Christ goes to the cross, those are Old Testament people, right? They're Jews, they're going to the temple and offering their sacrifices, they're doing all the old covenant things, and they're old covenant people. And what I was trying to show you last time is that they had a very, a very clear messianic perspective that they were looking for a Messiah. I want to look uh, for you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. I showed you a couple of verses in Matthew last week, we won't go back over those, but Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, 
verses 25 and 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Let's pause there for a moment. What does that mean? He was a believer. Yeah, he, this, is, this is an Old Testament, what we say an Old Testament Christian is who Simeon is. He is righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what is he waiting for? He's waiting for something that's not the temple, that's not the animal sacrifices, that's not the Mosaic, Mosaic law, that's not the festivals. He's waiting for something. He's waiting for uh, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel to come, which is going to be the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And so the Holy Spirit communicates to this believing person that uh, he is not going to die until he actually sees the Messiah. And, of course, what's going to happen in the next verses? Who's going to come into the temple to do those original sacrifices that they do for newborn children? It's going to be Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And so he is actually going to see the Lord's Messiah. Look at 3.15. This is Luke 3.15. And notice the description here. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. So this is the scene. John has come on the scene, John the Baptist, and he's different from all the rabbis and all the priests. And it's clear to the people that he is preaching something that is, that is spiritually deep and different from what they're hearing uh, from their religious leaders. And so what question do they begin to ask when there is this dynamic spiritual man who's on the scene preaching and telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? Uh, what, what is their reaction? What, what do they begin to ask? Well, they begin to have these expectations. And they are questioning in their hearts about him whether or not he might actually be the Messiah. Let's look over to John's gospel. That's their reaction. They don't know what to think about him at this point. But note that their mind immediately goes where? To the Messiah. Because that's what they're expecting. That's what they're longing for. John 141. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, what, uh, what we see Andrew do here is Andrew has met Christ. And he is just stunned with this man. That he's met. And so he runs to tell Peter about this one that he's met. And what does he say he is? This extraordinary person. 
he says, this is the Christ. That's his uh, initial assessment there on his first meeting uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 25. Chapter 4, verse 25. Now, we're in an entirely different setting. This is the woman of Samaria. And so if you remember, Jesus is traveling and he stops uh, in this, he stops here in Samaria and he asked uh, for water to drink. And that's the setting of all those events. We know that story. But know what, what this, we see in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, I want you to note that this woman, and we're not even talking about someone who is a, who is a, a proper Jew in any sense. The Samaritans were a mixture of uh, you know, Jewish things and things that they had added uh, into their uh, practice of religion. And so they're not even, this is not even a good, uh, sound, orthodox Jewish person. But this person has the idea, the concept that what she is seeing from Jesus, who's the, she can't explain, that uh, this must be the Messiah. She has a, a Messiah consciousness in her background. Look at chapter 7 and verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not come yet. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? That is the, the, what the people are saying. That's what they're thinking as they see Jesus in his public ministry. They're seeing the miracles. They're hearing him teach with authority. They're, seeing him, they're hearing him say things that no one has ever said before. There is cases as well where miracles are performed in support of his teaching. And so that, that the question in their mind is, is that if the Christ comes, if the Messiah is here, will he do more than what this man is doing? That was what they were thinking. That's what they were feeling. So I'm just suggesting to you this, that people before this point in time, are believing in the Messiah, longing for the Messiah, looking for the Messiah. They have a Messiah consciousness, and we see that in the gospel record. As the people hear John preach, as they hear, begin to hear Christ preach, they have this consciousness about Messiah because that is the object of the, the, of the faith of true believing Jews. Their hope is in the Messiah. Of course, we, we should know that that is the case, that their hope is in the Messiah. Now, let's go back for a moment to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. 
Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. So in time, we are, um, we are here around this time, in time. So in our timeline, we're, we're back in this time. In the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 15, we're about here in time. And we read this in Genesis uh, chapter 15, verse 6. This is speaking of Abraham. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, does that verse sound familiar to you? <laughs> I hope that it does uh, sound familiar to you. And what is the principle there? The principle is that Abraham was saved on what basis? By believing, by believing God's promises. And what was God's promise? God's promise was to him and his seed that we know is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn over to the book of Romans. Pastor Justin spent many weeks in this section. And so when we come to the book of Romans, and Paul is doing this, Paul is explaining to us our Christian salvation. And he is arguing that we are saved by faith and not by works. Now, how is he going to prove that to us? He's going to prove that to us by quoting from the passage that we just read in Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so that's the principle that he is saying is established for us in Genesis 15, 6, that God saves those who believe, even though they're ungodly, God accounts, the, accounts it as righteousness to them because they're saved by grace uh, through faith. That is how they're saved. And he says that happened in Genesis 15, 6. Now remember, in time, that's not a fair description. In time, that first part is a little bit, and the sec down at the bottom, those three sections, is a long time. And so that's not a good representation of the time period. Way back in the early days of human history, Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, the principle of the gospel is already being laid down in the Scriptures. Look at verses 9. And following, verses 9 through 12. And I'm not going to spend time talking about it. Just let me just read them for you quickly. Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the, uh, for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. And so the point he's making is this. He is making the point that God deals with Abraham in such a way that he represents both uncircumcised people and circumcised people. In his God experience, his salvation experience, God's covenant with him and his dealing with him. He does it in such a way that he enters into covenant before he's circumcised, but then he makes him be a circumcised person. So 
all of us, whether we're Jew or Gentile, whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, we all come within the scope of this statement that it is through believing that it is accounted to us for righteousness. Now, why is that important? Because in the old covenant, people of God, they were not exclusively, but almost all what? Circumcised people. They were almost all Jewish people. There were exceptions. There were Gentiles that were converted. But they were almost all circumcised people. Now in the new covenant, with all the Gentile nations having the gospel, now we are, it is not a, a people that is necessarily primarily a circumcised people. That is no longer the case. And so whether we're in, in the old covenant people of God or whether we're in the new covenant people of God, we are all connected with Abraham and we're all connected with this principle. He is the father of all who believe from every era, from the beginning of time all the way uh, to the end of human history. He is the father of those who believe. There's also something interesting about verse 9. It says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? If the gospel did not apply before the cross, and if believing in Christ did not apply before the cross, doesn't that question almost seem to be backwards? I don't know if I'm making any sense with my question. But it would almost be, if the gospel didn't apply to the circumcised people of the Old Covenant, then that, that would be an odd question to ask. This question, implicit in this question, is the fact that those circumcised people that were really saved were saved by faith in the Messiah. That's implicit in that, in that question that's asked there. Any questions about any of that? As far as it, is, it extending throughout all times of history. Who believes? You mean, you mean this? You mean this? This is the predominant view in, um, in evangelical churches in the United States. It would be um, probably a significant number, more than half, of Southern Baptist churches. It would be um, all of the Pentecostal and charismatic groups. Uh, it would be um, among evangelicals, just about every group, uh, the, the exception, the only exceptions would be people who really are covenant, uh, reformed type evangelicals would be the exception. I mean, we're, we're the minority in modern times. This. And you may not have been, it may have never been, it may, have been, it may never have been an emphasis here. In the church that I grew up, this is what I was taught.
Oh, I think that they think this now. I think this is what they think today. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's the case. <laughs> Unless they changed last week. <laughs> That that is that is this that is this theological scheme when you hear that. Mm-hmm. And we will talk about that just a little bit, just to let you know when we get into Daniel 7 through 12, we'll, we'll, we'll stumble into some of that uh, as we go, actually go through those texts. Mm-hmm. Well,
Well, yes, yeah, so we're—I mean, we would—we're th- in the new covenant in in as far as the covenants, we're in the new covenant, and if you're a dispensationalist, you would say we're in great. It's a matter of how we got there, and to some degree, but there's other—I mean, there's other richness of uh, the gospel. I think that is excluded because I don't know if you've ever heard people say this. I've heard this many times, not a, a few, th- that the Old Testament is really of no particular use for us other than kind of curiosity or history it's not we're not supposed to go back to the old testament we use the new testament if it's in the old testament and it's not explicitly repeated in the new testament that's that's that that is this that is this view that is this view uh being stated when you hear that uh kind of thing have you ever seen in any context have you ever heard of groups having prophecy conferences have you ever seen them advertised? you ever heard about it, whether you went to one or not? Prophecy Conference. They used to be just real popular, and they were everywhere. And uh, anyway, if you didn't, fine. But if you did, it was always this is what they were about. And they used to be in, the, in vogue a lot. You know? And there's a lot of guys on TV even today. I mean, you, some of you may have seen Jack Van Impey on TV, for example, somebody that's been on for decades and decades and, uh, and still is, I've seen somewhere on TV, just as one example of many. Oh, oh we, we, we will do that all the way through Daniel, <laughs> hopefully. Okay. All right, we're out of time, so let's, let's cut it off for the evening. And uh, we'll just stop right here. Let's uh, ask God to bless us.